June 17, 2017 was a monumental day in South LA's history. The corner of Crenshaw and Slauson was packed. Seniors, adults, kids, babies spilled out on the streets in anticipation. The entire community was out there. The love in the building that day was like through the roof. It was just dope to see that. It wasn't just the neighborhood that turned out to support Nipsey. Some of his friends in the NBA pulled up too, like DeMarcus Cousins. I feel like the entire community was proud of, you know, Nip. Like, this was a huge stepping stone. Not only was it benefiting him, but it benefited the same exact area that he grew up in, which was everybody that was there. They were all there for the grand opening of the Marathon Store, a project more than a decade in the making, a store that bore the name of Nipsey's personal philosophy and that exemplified his belief in the power of never giving up. It just felt hopeful and victorious. Marquise Harris-Dawson is the council member for the district that includes Crenshaw. The hood came out, the elected officials came out, everybody was there to celebrate. It's the only time I've closed a major street in my district. We closed Slauson, and uh, nobody complained. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Nipsey also. As Nipsey prepared to cut the ribbon and open the doors to the marathon for the first time, he was visibly excited, beaming ear to ear. It's not about just the reception or the love. It's about the impact that you're putting on that community. It inspired me to do the same Mind. I want to be able to bring back to, you know, my stomping grounds and have people receive me in that same way. I would be lying to say I wasn't inspired and influenced by Nip. Five, four, three, two, one. Marathon is now open, ladies and gentlemen. Now please turn on and From 30 for 30 Podcast and The Undefeated, this is The King of Crenshaw. I'm Justin Tinsley. Episode 4, Neighborhood Nip. Standing right here is a guy who looks like Snoop Dogg. Damn. But he ain't Snoop Dogg. Well, you do, you do look. I get that all the time. What's your name, man? You knew an upcoming, but you at this summit. What's your name? Where you from? My name Nipsey Hussle. I'm from L.A., Slauson and Crenshaw area. This is Nipsey Hussle being interviewed back in 2006 outside a hip-hop summit in L.A. It's widely believed to be his first on-camera interview. He's 21 years old, just a little facial hair, rocking a Seattle Manor's fitted cap, an oversized white tee, and a single gold chain around his neck. So talk a little bit about yourself, man. What brings you up here, up and coming, and you know, how come you're not blinging and having all kind of crazy diamonds and all that? I guess you're here to get your money right, huh? As the interviewer, legendary hip-hop journalist Davey D asked the question. Nipsey grins knowingly. You can see he's thinking something like, I'm glad you peeped that. Now let me put you on game and show you where my head's at. All that is cool for the image and all that, but all them is liabilities, you feel me? I'd rather invest in some real estate, you know what I'm saying? Something oh, wait, well, can you repeat that again, man? You're up-and-coming artist. What did you say you want to do? I say invest in some assets as opposed to trick off my money on some liabilities like diamonds. You know what I'm saying? Cars that lose value, so you drive them off the lot. So you're trying, to, you're trying to get land. Exactly, homie. A real asset. Take care of my people. 
first off, you'll never hear a rapper speak in that way, let alone a young black man. That right there just separated him from any other artist, any other leader. He was, I don't even know what age, but from the looks of it, he looked like he was a baby. But to hear him speaking in that way, his knowledge is way beyond his years. People usually don't get that mindset till they're 45 years old. That interview left a lasting impression on DeMarcus Cousins. And let's just be honest, like when it comes to our people, we get a little money and it's about showing off. It's about the jewelry. It's about the cars. It's it's about a lavish lifestyle instead of putting yourself in a position to where you're not successful just in the moment, but on a long-term scale. For some reason, our people just, we can't register that. It's always about the moment instead of the long-term plan. The stories are familiar. Young rappers and athletes blowing their millions on diamonds and cars, burning through paychecks as soon as it hits their bank account. And understandably, if you come from nothing, watching the whole world flaunt its privilege in your face, when you finally get paid, you want everyone to see it. But Nipsey understood something. Money is a form of power, and poverty is a form of control. He also understood that black people with financial independence scared America to its core. And that black ownership brings freedom. Or as Nipsey and his close friends and business partners, Cobby Supreme and Pac-Man the Gunman put it, you've got to get inside the building. We never owned none of them buildings. Right. And we were saying this neighborhood and we never owned nothing. So we was big on like getting some money and going back and and try to buy the neighborhood back. And uh, that also will enlighten the younger kids that's growing up. Straight up. You ain't got to work for nobody. It's cool to be a boss. You ain't got to be a follower. It was a dream that was blood, sweat, and years in the making. But eventually, Nipsey did exactly what he said he would. He got inside them buildings. But first, he had to start in the parking lot. A parking lot on the corner of Crenshaw and Slauson, to be precise. A lot of life happened there. Some might say too much life. Here's Nipsey's brother, Sam. He used to hustle in the lot and get kicked out from everybody in the lot on Crenshaw and Slauson. The lot ended up closing down because niggas used to be in the lot 20, 30 thick. Nobody would pull in. The tenants would leave. It was abandoned. So that whole area was just boarded up and was just a hangout. You know, the homies used to pull in there and sell dope and niggas used to get beat up. It was just like super gang activity. It wasn't an easy place to do business. First, Nipsey and Sam sold t-shirts, socks, sweats, and other apparel from the trunk of a car. There were young men out selling for 15 hours a day, making good money. But that's not legal. So the police, let's just say, intervened. Here's Copy Supreme. He'll set the table out and put the t-shirts on the table. We'll watch the police snatch their shit up, harass them. And you know what he'll do? Go get another table and go get more T-shirts. And they'll come snatch it again. And he'll get another T-shirt and another table and they'll come snatch it again. Remember, they took everything. It was like, if you want to sell anything on the street, you know, lease a building out like everybody else and pay taxes. And so we sitting there depressed, like, fuck, man, we just done spent our last $3,000 on all this product and they just took everything. And then we just look across the street and in the same lot, it's a for lease sign. So it just hit me like, okay, you know what? That's a sign. So we end up calling, doing whatever wiggle we could do, and we end up getting the lease and got in there. 
a street hustle became a legal operation called Slauson Tees in the strip mall that sat in the parking lot at Crenshaw and Slauson. And we had everything that we get, t-shirts, socks, wife beaters, boxers. Um, we ended up having eight or nine different colors of t-shirts, jeans, shoes. We just ended up loading it up. At that point, it was booming. You know, we, we would look at each other and just be smiling and, and laughing like, damn, this shit is really rolling. The trajectory from Sloss and Tees to the Marathon Store ran parallel to Nipsey's rise as a rapper. Both were part of a grand plan for himself and the community. Buying his music was more than just buying a CD. And spending money at the store was more than just picking up a t-shirt. Which is why, as the business grew, customers saw they had a role to play in supporting Nipsey, Sam, and the whole team. They liked spending money with us and with Hustle, you know, young entrepreneurs. So they saw the money that they spend turn into something bigger and watched it grow. So everybody that came from every different hood knew that, you know, number one, they was going to be good when they came in a lot. They was going to get shown love. And also they felt a part of the growth because they knew that their money and their support built this shit up bigger. Buying that building and opening the Marathon Store was a boss move by Nipsey and Sam. But even they knew it was bigger than them they actually did something to keep more money in the neighborhood. Here's council member Marquise Harris-Dawson. There's this economic theory called leakage that almost every black community in the country has where black people in that neighborhood make money and they leave their neighborhood to spend money, which is not a bad thing, except the neighborhoods that they go spend money in, those people don't come back to their neighborhood and spend money. And what the Marathon store did was turn that on its head. So it said, okay, we're going to create the value, but we're going to make you come here to buy it. So that business, that sales tax and all that gets credited to my space. And we get to do improvements and we get to trim trees and pave streets and, you know, uh, pay our young people to do work because of that investment. And so we, Black community has done this from the beginning of time. We've been creating value. This is one of the first models where we got to realize the value in our own area. Kabi Supreme and Pac-Man saw firsthand Nipsey and Sam's personal investment in the community and its people. I seen a lot of guys come home from, from prison and they come home straight to, to the store, to the marathon store, and they get a whole packet. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was something that Nip or Black, they didn't have to do it, but it was something that they was big on. Like, if it was a, a young boy walking down Slauson and he probably was from a group home and had on some raggedy shoes, Black Sam would go to the trunk or never go inside the store and they'll go find a pair of Jordans and give it to the little boy. You know what I'm saying? Or give him some clothes. We was big on that kind of thing. Yeah, they heart was pure from the jump, man. It it just happened when the cameras turned on and all that. You know, the love was there from the beginning, way before the millions and all that. But it wasn't just the neighborhood that benefited. Nipsey was laying out a blueprint that extended far beyond his corner of Crenshaw and Slauson. One of the things that Nipsey modeled was doing it out loud, right? Like very publicly saying, this is where I'm opening a storefront and this is why. Very publicly talking about the responsibility to community, very publicly calling for a reinvestment in the areas that you came from and not just to escape from them. Amira Rose Davis is a professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State and co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast. 
for many NBA players, it was also an invitation and a blueprint for being louder and visible with that work and the importance of that. It's important to do this work and important to talk about doing it. And I think that that touches a vein in Black laborers who are entertainers, especially because that has been historically one space of upward mobility that Black people have had across the 19th and 20th century, which is if you're entertaining people, particularly white people, you're going to have a pathway of upward mobility as an individual. Black entertainers have always had a road unfold before them that was an individual path. And the importance of saying, I'm walking this road, but it's a two-way street. And that this is not just an exit, but it's a return. Nipsey and his friends in the NBA wanted to amass Black wealth. Because they knew the roads that had unfolded before them, even their very lives, could vanish in an instant. They understand their acceptance is conditional. That because they can rap or because they can shoot, that they've been granted a certain, you know, hall pass to white America. Nothing brought that home quite like the case of Trayvon Martin. It's the story that's ignited fierce passions across the nation as allegations of racism and miscarriage of justice tear apart a small Florida town. Three weeks ago, Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager, was shot down by a white neighborhood watchman who claimed self-defense. And it's caused a public outcry that spread like wildfire. In 2012, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was shot and killed after making a run to the store for some Skittles and a can of iced tea. George Zimmerman, a former neighborhood watch captain in Sanford, Florida, saw a black boy in a hoodie. He claimed self-defense and was later acquitted. Trayvon was just trying to get home to watch the NBA All-Star game. The case and its verdict evoked rage nationwide. But you know what made it scary for Black men? The familiarity of it all. We're all Trayvon. This could have been my son. Uh, Another way of saying that is uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me 35 years ago. We've all been that young Black kid deemed a threat because of how we looked, what we wore, how we spoke. We learned early on what it meant to be a target and for the justice system to do anything but live up to its own name. The loss of Trayvon's life hit a nerve and birthed action from the NBA's biggest stars. Because sports and Black entertainment spaces have been some of the most visible places that Black people have existed in this country, um, they've also been some of the biggest platforms on which to speak out, on which to agitate for change, on which to register (laughs) dissatisfaction with the status quo. And so because of that, we have a long history of athletic activism, of sports being a site where it feels like societal tensions are being played out. The death of Martin has grabbed national attention. It has spread into the sports world. In fact, LeBron James tweeted a team photo of the Miami Heat wearing hoodies to pay tribute to Martin, who was wearing a hoodie when he was killed. It's easy to think sports are just about a game, what happens on the field or on the court. But there was a shift around this time to something even bigger than the box score. There was value in seeing black men with platforms like Nipsey, like athletes, even President Obama acknowledged their fear, our fear. 
We idolize these men as superheroes, but no one goes through life without scars. America is a scary place for a black man. Showing them publicly makes us all feel less alone. And that's the real superpower. Trayvon Martin's parents were in L.A. today to lead a peace march more than one year after the Florida man accused of killing him was found not guilty. In July 2014, on the anniversary of Zimmerman's not guilty verdict, Trayvon's parents organized a peace march in L.A. to raise awareness about gun violence. Nipsey Hussle attended the event at Crenshaw High School and talked about why it was so important to change the game, why everyone needed to be talking about politics and social justice. So I think it's a two-sided monster. Institutions like the police, like schools, need to try to finesse a little better and figure out, you know, how to work with the community that they police so that they teach it. And in our, our, our own people, we gotta lace our youngsters and tell them how to, you know, Think it's, it's chess, it's not checkers. Here's Amira Rose Davis. This, to me, is the Trayvon generation. Very similar to the way Emmett Till's death galvanized the entire generation of activists that would form the core of the classical civil rights movement. Trayvon Martin's murder had a very similar effect across the board on activists, on politicians, on uh, teachers, on students, on athletes. It's like, yo, we've been on this, but it's just been home. But since it's everywhere, let's use our voices to speak out on it even more. For players like DeMar DeRozan, something had been unleashed. It's our right to be able to speak on things when it happened. And you see so many guys do it because it's our right to be able to protect our communities, people that look like us, people who don't have a voice, people who are suffering and going through so much. Who will we be to not be able to do that? this next chapter of collective athletic activism that we've been seeing, it manifested in different ways, whether it was on the stage of the ESPYs. The racial profiling has to stop. The shoot-to-kill mentality has to stop. Not seeing the value of black and brown bodies has to stop. WNBA players shutting down press conferences in the spring of 2016, saying they weren't going to take comment unless it was about police brutality. So, Tamika, I know we're not talking about basketball tonight, so do you have any other comments? No comment. Whether it was NBA players, WNBA players, college basketball players wearing I Can't Breathe shirts after Alton Sterling was murdered, and of course Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, which then made that a symbol of disruption and resistance that spread throughout the country to youth leagues, to college leagues, to pro leagues and beyond. That rise in activism is absolutely part of this generation that has been called to action by its seemingly never-ending images of Black death. Like athletes, Black musicians are part of this Trayvon generation. You saw a rise in songs and, and lyrics that waded into politics. Nipsey waded into those political waters in 2016, alongside fellow L.A. rapper YG, with an anthem called FDT. Fuck Donald Trump. Fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. 
The song provided a call to action against the then Republican presidential candidate, a guy many believe uses race, class, and economic stature as dividers. When you hear them, you know, with a song called Fuck Donald Trump, right, that talks about the Rodney King riots, that talks about rallying folks together in L.A., that talks about Reaganomics and the war on drugs. These very public pronouncements, whether they're in lyric, whether they're in a verse, it's all about the increasing vocalization of discontentment with the state of this country for Black Americans and using whatever platform you have, whether it's the pen or or a ball, to do it and saying unequivocally, we're not going to shut up and dribble, right? We're not going to shut up and tap dance for you. We're not going to just entertain you. We're fully realized people in pursuit of our humanity and the humanity of our people. And what that looks like is what Nipsey does. What that looks like is what NBA players have been doing. It's that simple assertion that I'm fully human and I have a voice and the ability to do it. I thought all that Donald Trump bullshit was a joke. Once the election was over, one of the loudest voices criticizing this new generation of activist athletes was now the man inside the White House. And like Nipsey and YG, star players in the NBA weren't shy about sharing their opinion of Donald Trump. Is there any regret that you got into a name-calling situation with the president? No. A name-caller? What'd I say? Let me hear you say it. Called him a bum. In 2017, when President Trump uninvited the Golden State Warriors to a traditional champions meet-and-greet at the White House, After Stephen Curry said he wouldn't attend, LeBron James very famously tweeted, you bum, at the president. It's not a name call. It's, uh, nice. You bum. Me and my friends call each other that all the time. I'm not his friend, though, though, though. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah. It was funny. It went viral. It pissed some people off. Just like YG and Nipsey's banger, it was short, sweet and directly to the point. And like most successful forms of protest, it let LeBron speak his truth. That's what makes me more sick than anything. It's the most powerful position in the world. And we are at a time where the most powerful position in the world has an opportunity to bring us closer together as a people and inspire the youth and put the youth at ease on saying that it is okay for me to walk down the street and not be judged because of the color of my skin or because of my race. And he doesn't even care. Maybe he he does, but he doesn't care. After fear, after protest, comes the unsexy part. Building the bridge for others to walk across. Not just calling the play, but running it to perfection. This is the part of the marathon that inspired NBA players. And guys like myself, whose last good crossover was probably on NBA 2K11. A rap star and another man from the Crenshaw District have teamed up to give back to their community. The space offers something for the next generation of business leaders. In February 2018, the same week Victory Lap dropped, an all-star weekend took over Los Angeles, Nipsey was involved in opening a new space just around the corner from the Marathon store. It was the idea of real estate developer David Gross. He brought the project to Nipsey because he saw how active he was in reshaping the community. 
if I have to give it a formal name and what it is, it was, it was a co-working space and kind of small business incubator. The building was split in two, a STEM program for kids called Too Big to Fail. And for entrepreneurs, there was Vector 90. Really, we just wanted to create a hub, this communal space for young, dynamic, old, dynamic people in the neighborhood, a space that felt like it was designed intentionally for them. It was built by Black people from the inner city for Black people from the inner city. One of the requirements is that you come from this part of L.A. in order to actually rent a space. The goal was both ambitious and simple. Get Black people from the hood into the Silicon Valley game. All of the jobs in Silicon Valley require STEM knowledge. Right. So if you're going to go work at Google, Facebook, any one of these billion-dollar companies that have very, very little diversity and that will hire just based on there's not a lot of qualified people. Skill. Yeah, that's that that come from our ethnic backgrounds. It's important because they saying that there's no pipeline, that these kids got to learn so early that public inner city schools are not training them to go be a part mm -hmm. of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So the idea for Too Big to Fail is that we'll be a bridge in between Silicon Valley and the inner city. Where so much of Nipsey's entrepreneurial endeavors have been about today, everything about Vector 90 and Too Big to Fail was about tomorrow. This had been important to Nipsey for a long time, creating opportunities that would improve things in the long run, create generational wealth. And it was just as important to his partner, David Gross. Like Nipsey, David grew up in South LA, but his family left when he was 10 years old because of the gang violence. As an adult, he returned to Southern California and sought ways to change the hood for the better. And for me, you know, I'm, I spent my whole life learning the art and science of being an investor. So it would not have been genuine or authentic or kind of native to me to try to start a rec center or community center or, or kind of be a preacher activist type. So for me, it had to be something in my world. So it had to be something that was related to an investment in education in our community. Nipsey and Gross teamed up to do something tangible, to create the opportunities that would make a real difference for future generations. That's what it always was about for him you know it was always a constant conversation of how can we do this how can we motivate how can we inspire the next set of guys that didn't have nobody weeks before nipsey's death in march 2019 demar DeRozan and nipsey got together for dinner it was at a house it was me james harden a couple of close friends from the city and we were just having our normal eating, talking, just trying to figure out ways how we could do something special. For the two friends from Crenshaw and Compton, their conversations often centered around these conversations of how to make a difference. For us, it was never nothing about sports. It was all about how we could better our city. They plotted together on what making a difference would actually look like. Man, it was owning and us being the one that controlled the narrative when it came to the city of us just being black men, being the inspiration, being the ones people from the inner city look up to, be motivated by, putting the power in our own hands to dictate and show what it really takes to be one of us and not be held back because of something else or the system or whatever it may be. DeMar had thoughts about starting a clothing line of his own, an idea that would eventually become Comp 10 a combination of his hometown and his jersey number. The business gives back to his community in the same way Nipsey gave back through the marathon. 
just me watching that and being kind of inspired from his movement and pushing part of his city where he was from. And, you know, he had the Slauson hoodies. All that was dope. He was definitely an inspiration for me to want to carry it over for my section for sure. DeMar left dinner that night in 2019, excited and inspired to get started. Meanwhile, Nipsey was looking ahead to an April 1st meeting with the LAPD to discuss ways to curb gang violence and help kids. And there's the tragedy. So many ideas were in the air. So much potential for Crenshaw, for LA. Two weeks after that dinner with DeMar, and the day before the meeting with the police, Nipsey was dead. This sudden, violent end felt particularly unfair. It still does. You know, embracing home, embracing your roots and all of that, it's almost the same thing that killed him. I don't know, the same thing that he loved the most is the same thing that, you know, basically killed him. For DeMarcus Cousins and so many who looked up to and loved Nipsey, it's even harder that it happened on Nipsey's own turf. But even in death, He's still putting Crenshaw on his back. He's still helping black folks build wealth and the ability to shape their own destiny. I'm here on historic Crenshaw Boulevard, where the project Destination Crenshaw will start on 48th Street and span 1.3 miles to 60th Street. In February 2020, a project close to his heart broke ground. Destination Crenshaw was four years in the making. The $100 million initiative is 1.3 miles of blackness right through the Crenshaw corridor. The stretch of new parks, community spaces, and original art is designed to be a celebration of the area's rich history in arts, black history, and black culture. An extension of the LA Metro Rail from LAX Airport to downtown, it would pass right through Crenshaw a major disruption for business owners in the area. Many saw it as a problem, but Nipsey saw opportunity. L.A. Councilmember Marquise Harris-Dawson. Nipsey said, We need Crenshaw to be the destination, not the pass-through. Not the way you get to where else you're going. We hashtag Destination Crenshaw that day or the next day. It blew up, and then it got the name Destination Crenshaw. Once complete, an estimated 5 million people a year are expected to use the line through Crenshaw. And that was Nipsey's ultimate goal, to introduce people to the area, but also keep Crenshaw, Crenshaw. Here's culture critic Garrett Kennedy. It's going to be impossible to talk about the history of South L.A. and not at all mention Nip, especially that day when Destination Crenshaw opens and you see this gorgeous artwork up and down this corridor, you know, that this man was a part of bringing into fruition. Then you also see his image everywhere you go. And I love that. I love finding a new mural of him almost on a weekly basis now, it seems. But just seeing him everywhere, I think is going to not only define him, but it's going to define South LA. I just mourn the fact that we couldn't have seen more of who he was becoming. Look at what he did with his life in such a short amount of time. Look at the foundation he built. For Debbie Brown, Nipsey was always looking ahead. I think he left us 
especially Black men, a blueprint for what worthiness looks like, what greatness looks like, what impact, what service, what visionary creativity can be. Also, what steady resilience looks like. I'm just in awe of the way he carried himself for the over 10 years that I knew him. I'm in awe of it. Nipsey's marathon continues. And for his brother, Sam, that's the most important thing. The marathon continues, man. The legacy of Nipsey, the inspiration, kind of the blueprint of hard work pays off and uh, there's no shortcuts. Just the mentality that bro brought and demonstrated is gonna be like a, you know, a fable or like a, a William Wallace, you know, Braveheart or like a, you know, Malcolm X type of inspirational figure. The things he put his energy towards, yeah, it, it wasn't for himself. It was, you know, for the greater cause and for, for other people around. Because when you look at that and you see Hustle's journey, it's just gonna make you understand that you can do the same thing. You can do it with pride, respect, morals. You don't have to water down your integrity, trying to gain something very quick. Uh, you don't have to sell yourself short or sell your talents out. You can take the hard, long road, build it, and reap the benefits, and also teach others how to do the same thing. There's still work to be done. Here's Amira Rose Davis again. I think Nipsey certainly planted seeds. I think his friends in the NBA continue to water them. I think activists continue to foster uh, new visions for liberation and for Black freedom and for a just future. It's really about the community. It's bringing everybody along. And in the process, it's running to a new future that perhaps we can't even see because we haven't imagined it yet. But giving ourselves the space to, in Nipsey's model perhaps, think about possibilities that aren't there yet. That idea of Nipsey's marathon continues to inspire and motivate his friends around the NBA. They've had to keep pushing forward, taking their wins and their losses, in a game where fortunes can change in an instant. That can be as heartbreaking as it is glorious. Isaiah Thomas is the definition of a marathon runner. After injuries hampered his career following that legendary season in Boston, IT is still running his race. He's bounced around the league from Cleveland to L.A., Denver, Washington, and New Orleans. He has a tattoo of one of Nipsey's lyrics from Racks in the Middle. I've been climbing battles up a steep hill, it reads. That ink is a reminder that quitting isn't an option and that life is bigger than the game that changed his life. I got a production company called Slow Grind Media. I think piggybacks what the marathon is about. Also, with my media production company, I own my own content. That relates to what he owned, his own masters and his publishing and all that. When I was in Boston and I was in the MVP race and hitting the All-Stars and I was healthy, I didn't realize how much power I had you know, to be able to do things on my own and to be able to inspire so many people to what I was doing and to be able to get people to relate to my story and what, you know, what I've been through and what 
my life is about and what my career is about. And I think I got most of that from him. I don't even know if he realized how big he was. If he realized how many people related to what he was speaking on, how many people he inspired. And I just hope he was able to, you know, see how big and how influential he was to athletes, to the everyday person that's working a nine to five. I'm like, bro, you moved people that you probably didn't realize you moved. Nipsey not being here is something DeMarcus Cousins still struggles with. He'll carry the responsibility of his friend's legacy for the rest of his life. In his eyes, he owes Nipsey that much. I'm going to be honest, to this day, it was never, uh, I don't know, obviously it was never any closure for me. Like, I wasn't able to be there and, you know, say my goodbye, whatever the case may be. So for me, I... I stayed in that blank space when it came to that situation and I just kind of dealt with it like that. I still to this day haven't accepted it. When I tell you like, I never accept it, I don't even really talk about it. Like I don't talk about it. This is really my first time going into details outside of my, two of my best friends who, who also grew up with Nip. Like, Outside of that, I, I don't really speak on Nip. I, I I don't really, I don't like to. What made you decide to want to speak for this? Like, what, what was it that was like, all right, I'll do this? Um, It was more so for Nip's legacy. I want to bring as much light and positivity and, like, he deserves this. Like, he deserves his flower. He deserved him when he was alive, and he damn sure deserves him now. We need to celebrate this guy because he was one of our superheroes. He deserves this. When Nipsey died, a piece of me did too. I haven't really been the same since. It's hard to explain, but I feel it as I say these words right now. So when DeMarcus said that Nipsey deserves this, I felt that. What I lost will never compare to those who love the man firsthand. But one thing I've come to understand is that grief is like a fingerprint. It looks different on everyone. Grief doesn't have a time limit. And in a way, grief never goes away. We just learn to live with a part of us, not physically here anymore. That's called resilience. The most powerful thing we can do with our lives is to make it speak for us in death. It says far more than my words ever could the number of people around Nipsey who have vowed to continue his marathon and run their own. I add his name every morning. I say top of the top on Twitter, like all of that. That's something I try to keep alive. You know, life is really a marathon. You know, you have your good laps, you got your bad laps, you got, you know, when you're tired, when you're feeling great, but it's still the same race from, you know, start to finish. And that's, that's what he was, you know, pushing and I felt like I was on the same tip. This life is a marathon, man. Life is a marathon. That alone, like how how many people you know have that mindset? 
I know before a lot of this even came about, I mean, you would be in a bad situation. You would feel like you at your lowest or you're at your worst and life is over. It's like, nah, <laughs> this is a bad day. You got a bunch of great days ahead of you and you got a bunch of more bad days ahead of you. That's life, man. That is life. That was his everyday message. The marathon continues. And it will. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. The King of Crenshaw was reported and hosted by me, Justin Tinsley. Senior producer is Joanne Griffith. Our production team, Gus Navarro, Dave King, and Derwin Graham. The series was edited by Julia Lowry Henderson senior editorial producer for 30 for 30 Podcasts, and Steve Reese, deputy editor for The Undefeated. Executive producers, Aaron Layden, Brian Lockhart, Kevin Merida, and Raina Kelly. Additional production support, Meredith Hotnot, Mitra Caboli, and Eve Wolf. Original music by Lawrence Dobson and Lamar Edwards of 1500 to Nothing. Music supervisor, Kevin Wilson. Mix engineering by Ryan Ross-Smith, Garrett Lang, and Ben Tolliday. Project manager and licensing, Kath Sankey. Jennifer Thorpe provided additional licensing support. Development, Adam Newhouse and Trevor Gill. Shantre K-Mac is our talent director. And Cherie Stevens, our associate talent director. Demi Lauren created the original artwork for the series. Roger Jackson provided fact-checking. Alan Lau provided legal review. Special thanks to Riley Bloom, Holly Tenty, Jonathan Larson, Anthony Salas, the team at Podville Media, and everyone who made time to speak with us for this series. <laughs> <laughs>